0: Hello, I'm Brian Hauk, head of grounds and gardens at the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas. I'm your host for a three-episode series with artful gardeners in Southern California.
1: I'm after the charm of tomatoes. I'm after the history of tomatoes, obviously appeal and taste and all of that. But if I can tie it up all in one, you know, in one bundle, that's what I want to choose.
0: In this episode, I speak with Scott Degg, founder of Tomato Mania. I vividly remember the first time I tasted a tomato. I was six years old and I was visiting a home garden in Oklahoma. I was given permission to eat a tomato. When I think back to that experience, I'm still filled with joy and wonder. It's one of my first vivid memories of plants. To say Scott Degg is also passionate about tomatoes is an understatement. Every year, he selects around 300 varieties of tomato for Tomato Mania, an event he runs across Southern California each spring to bring tomato seedlings to home gardeners. He is also a garden designer based in Ojai, California. I recently spoke to Scott about his mania for tomatoes, what makes heirloom tomatoes special. And how to grow them in your garden. I'm talking today with Scott Degg. Welcome, Scott. We're gonna talk about tomatoes today. I
1: love that idea. It's great to talk with you always, Brian. And this is my favorite topic. You're a plant person from way back. I am a plant person. <laughs> I am a plant person from way back. When did
0: you start learning about plants?
1: You know what? I I had a a garden when I was about five sort of mimicking my grandfather, right? My garden inspiration and specifically tomatoes. I remember being in his shed. I remember what that smelled like, right? And I grew up in Louisiana. So it was uh, a wet garden shed.
0: So as you grew up, your love of plants sort of took over your life. I know you've been a garden designer and you've been involved with a specialty nursery hortus in Pasadena. And there's probably a number of other things that I don't know about how did your garden journey begin?
1: I grew up in Louisiana most of my life. By the time I was 21, I had moved to Chicago and into a whole different world as far as gardening is concerned. I always say I did become a gardener in Chicago because I, I struggled through a winter there like I that I just wasn't ready for. I'd never done that in my life before. Then I remember that springtime vividly because, oh my God, it was time to be green and you know do things in the garden. So coming out of that, I through seeds in every available spot, you know, where I lived. I moved to Los Angeles about six years later, and uh, a friend signed me up for a community garden plot for my birthday on one of those years. And then it started for real. It really did. I did various marketing and uh, promotional kind of uh, career steps early on in my professional career. And I finally just got to the point where. I had to leave that. All I really wanted to do was garden. And you know, as you said, I went to work at Hortus, and that was a, that was a, Oh, it was, it was such a gem and it was such a, a, a hub really as well for all of gardening in Los Angeles. So I learned, I opened my ears. I just soaked it all up. And, uh, the garden design happened from that and on and on and on. And I helped build Tomato Mania when I was there. So that was critical for me. But it just kept expanding and kept changing. And I found new facets. Uh, you know, I never latched onto one part of gardening. I found new things, whether it was vegetables or succulents or, you know, whatever. And so rolled through all that in my early career. I'm glad you mentioned Tomato Mania, And I'm glad we finally
0: get to that topic because <laughs> that is one of the reasons we're here today. Tomato mania has become this part of our culture in Southern California.
1: Oh, my gosh. I'm so grateful for that. And, and, and I love hearing that. Warms my heart to hear that. To sort of jump the gun, tomato mania
0: is about heirloom tomatoes. Right. And you go around creating what you might call pop-up nursery events and sell heirloom tomatoes. Is
1: that a fair description? That is a fair description. We are a tomato circus in the springtime and we run around the state with, you know, a crazy amount of crazy and rare and amazing uh, tomatoes that we offer to home gardeners. That's what we do. That's what tomato Mania is. It started at Hortus. It was originally the brainchild of uh, Gary Jones, my pal, and then boss over there. I helped build the event while at the nursery. I kind of became event planner when I was there, sort of. And just, again, completely latched onto it. And when the nursery closed, I said, let's try to do this outside of this site. And then we became that pop-up. Um And that was 21 years ago, I think, maybe 22, isn't that crazy? And so, yeah, we took it on the road. And in fact, since then, we've been in five states and about almost 30 cities trying to figure out how it works best, how we like it best. All of that it 's always a work in progress, I guess, as any any small business is, but yes, we are a pop up and we offer crazy good tomato seedlings to good gardeners in uh, wherever we are I know you approach this as your business. I know
0: as a guest who 's been to in, Mania in the past, I feel like this is a service when i when I go there as a <laughs> so guest, nuts. I see heirloom tomatoes. And I get to pick and choose, you know, what's out there. And and as a gardener, as somebody who cares about what I bring into my home and why I might be choosing a tomato, the fact that there are so many to choose from and some knowledge and some education about it really makes me happy. Uh, thank you. You know, there's such a joy about heirloom tomatoes. I think it's worthwhile to say, what is an heirloom tomato? Why would somebody choose to grow a heirloom tomato versus a more modern hybrid tomato?
1: Well, in the truest, the horticultural sense, an heirloom tomato is a is a variety that is true from seed. That means that if I grow a black Crim this year, which is, I think that, I, I credit that tomato with starting the whole heirloom craze, sort of in in my world, in our world here. If I save a black crimp seed this year, I grow it out next year, I get the same fruit. And that's not true of some of the hybrid classics that we grow and have grown and love. So an heirloom, first of all, is true from seed. I think what people get attached to, and and the reason why they're so different, is that they come in a lot more colors and shapes, and they have a lot more personality, perhaps, than, again, the red, medium-sized, roundish kind of things that we've grown for years. And then they have stories. You literally have stories of this seed being you know, brought with families and explorers and people around the world. And the stories are rich. The stories are varied. And and the names tell a lot of the stories, where the tomato came from, what it's used for, whatever. Um, We have beautiful options like a Cherokee Purple. We have a Russian Queen. On and on and on. So many lovely varieties um, that, that, again, tell a little story. And you can participate in that. I think that's part of what we want. We get to participate in a little bit of history where gardening is concerned, and that is different and interesting for a home gardener. Let me see if I can lay this out. A heirloom tomato
0: could come from any part of the world. Absolutely. Okay. But tomatoes are not native to all parts of the world. No. Tomatoes are
1: from where originally? Originally, the thought is um, that they originated or they were first uh, domesticated, if you will, in South America, in Peru where they were growing wild. Somebody found one, tried it, and it obviously didn't kill them. And that was a good thing. It became a food source. And those seeds went around the world and they were bred to other things. And that's how we get all this huge variety we have today. Okay, tomato seeds
0: are dispersed throughout the world. Right. And gardeners around the world are starting their seeds over and over again for each year's crop.
1: Yes, saving those seeds. Very, very important part of that heirloom legacy. And
0: they are making selections according to their interests and their climate?
1: Bingo. Exactly. I mean, if I'm in a a super cold climate, I want to save seed from the first tomato of the year, right? I want that earliest tomato. And while I imagine that was really difficult, they probably wanted to eat that tomato. In order that they had tomatoes in Siberia or wherever, in cold climates, they perhaps, you know, grabbed that That first tomato, or let's imagine a a place with a longer season. All of a sudden there's this beautiful yellow lobed, amazing beefsteak tomato that happens out of maybe an accidental cross, maybe something that was planned and boom all of a sudden they just said well that's amazing that's different that's tasty let's hang on to that one so i imagine all these personalities happened either by accident or by someone's plan over many many years and people yes selected for exactly what they wanted their climate or what they needed to happen in the tomato garden or in the vegetable garden if i go talk to somebody who doesn't know much about gardening
0: i feel like they would tell me tomatoes come from italy
1: I mean, <laughs> that's good PR, is what that is, right? That's good PR. <laughs> Evidently, you got to grow San Marzanos in the hills, uh, uh the hills of Italy, right, in Pompeii or wherever that district is that's that's famous for them. But a tomato is, in truth, a pretty universal plant. Now, yes, it needs to do different things in different parts of the world, or it will react to different climates and seasons, et cetera. But by God, you can grow them everywhere. So, an heirloom tomato is of interest to most gardeners,
0: no matter where they are around the world, because they taste so much better than something you get from the store, right? That's a
1: fair statement. That is a fair statement, and I think, yes, it's a generalization because I think there are some stores who sell really good tomatoes at the height of the season when we should expect that it's best. I think most of us, because we now can have tomatoes almost all of the year, spend a lot of the year eating subpar tomatoes. So when it comes around to the time when we can grow them and eat them when they are ripe— and in season, and in my garden, the taste and the the excitement about that is just, come on, it's tenfold, right? And that's why we get excited, I think, about that heirloom, because we don't have necessarily have heirlooms all the time, year round, right? Even though we have, you know, some store-bought kind of reds that you can get in January, sure. It's harder to ship tomatoes across the world, like we can do with other fruits. Unfortunately, we sort of have to have some, some months when we eat cardboard-tasting tomatoes. And boy, when we can do it differently, we sure do. I know when
0: I've grown the yellow pear tomato in my backyard, my biggest problem is getting it into the house because I will have eaten my handful before I make it into the kitchen to actually use them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's almost what cherry tomatoes are for. You just got to grow a bunch of them so that you can't possibly do that. And then you can have something to eat later at dinner or whatever or to share, right? Well, yeah. I mean, there's, there's
0: also Matt's wild cherry, which of I course. actually haven't grown for years, but that is a favorite one of mine. Can you tell me about that variety?
1: I I don't know. It, it's a particular story. I know that I knew nuggets of that, Brian, from here, you know, through the years. It's named for Matt, a, a horticulturalist kind of adventurer. It is of Mexican origin, if I'm remembering my stats straight. And it's obviously, for your listeners who grow standard tomatoes, it, it doesn't fit in that mold. It's a wild tomato, which means that its leaves are frillier, maybe more, you know, it just, uh, it's just very, very different. And the tomato itself is more akin to that first tomato that was found on a hillside in South America. It's tiny. It's very tiny. So, you know, the tip of your little finger kind of tiny, and it packs a punch. It's got a great taste as well. So Matt's is one that because there are other varieties, and you mentioned yellow pear, and we see this with with this one as well, because those were so popular, have been so popular for a long time. There are other options that are like them that people move to just because it's interesting. A spoon is a, a lovely, I think it's the smallest tomato I've ever seen, so we love that about it. Um, but it is the Matt's Wild Cherry of today. It's almost like tomato fashion you know people move in and out of a various uh, as they sort of learn and grow and maybe even experiment in the kitchen they move amongst these varieties and that's another reason why that sort of large group is really really exciting for people who are obviously gardeners but also you know like to know what they eat and like to have an adventure when they eat as well
0: if i'm a gardener at home and i want to participate in this world of tomatoes I would just follow the same pattern of collecting the seeds and growing them up and choosing the one I would
1: wish, or if you wanted to i' always tell people that's way too organized for me i 'm an enthe- you know I love tomatoes, and I'm just so enthusiastic about them but that's you know that 's where the scientist comes in, and that is just not me, but there are many and i I should say some of the major trends in tomatoes today are being driven by backyard hybridizers, so yes, they are very much deciding. Oh, that's amazing. And that's amazing. And I like the growth pattern of this tomato, and the color on that one is just too good. Let's cross them and see what happens. The whole dwarf tomatoes that are coming onto the scene right now, which is huge in tomato circles, all happen because of small hybridizers. You have to have some patience and you have to have, you know, organizational skills before an heirloom can be sort of sold as one. It generally goes through seven to nine generations of testing or. Growing is what that is, and obviously tasting and, and all the rest. So it's a time-consuming thing. Um, is it possible? Absolutely. Seven to nine generations. Generations, absolutely. Does that mean seven to nine years? Well, in most cases, it does, right? If you don't have a greenhouse, and not many people have a, the kind of greenhouse that would give you you know, years or a full year of growth potential right? for even a tomato, which is tough and easy, yeah, it takes seven to nine generations. So in many cases, it is exactly that. It is exactly that. Um, and then, as you mentioned previously, it's not just growing, it's selecting. I think more often than not, though, back to your point about, you know, people saving seeds, I think it was accidental or or not even accidental, but just informally, you know, people saved that thing that they wanted. And by the time the kids grew up, they had only, had only that tomato in the garden, and then they passed it on to the grandkids, you know, so that's how that works. Ah, huh, that makes sense. I mean, I
0: know... From my own gardening, yellow pear will reseed itself in my yard and I don't have to do anything. Yes. So that comes back again and again. But to your point about tomato seeds being in families, I do hear stories about, you know, grandchildren who who are growing the grandparents' tomato.
1: Oh, it's a lovely, It's, 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 it's a legacy, right? Right, right. That makes a lot of sense.
0: All right. I might be in the same boat as you in terms of not being organized or patient enough <laughs> to create my own heirloom tomato. So how do I discover the tomato I want? Where do I get information?
1: There's so much out there. And obviously, the the web, the internet is our key to that. I, I imagine that Best estimate, there are probably six to 7,000 varieties of tomatoes, seeds of tomatoes, that I can get to in any moment. So- Give me a moment, you said six to (laughs) 7,000. Yes. See how hard it is to edit to my 300 that we do every year? It's very hard. Wow. Yeah. Six to 7,000. And happening more, and as I mentioned, happening more and more and more, you know, each year as people get more excited about these things and figure out a new way that a tomato can be used or otherwise grown or like that. So just to follow up on your question, though, the internet is your gold, as well as obviously in-person events. I know there are neighborhood events even in in, in Ojai where people share and all of that. There's something called the World Tomato Society right now that's on Instagram and on, you know, every, everywhere you want to be. Their posts are all about tomato varieties. So if you follow them, you can get 300 in a year. And I'm look, I follow them and go, oh my God, I gotta look for that. It's kind of amazing. You'll learn about where they come from, who developed them, if they know that, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, it's a treasure trove out there. So if I
0: went to your pop-up nursery event, Tomato Mania, mm-hmm. right. and you've said that there are 300 or so varieties that you'll grow in a given year... I still don't even know how I'm going to sort through 300 interesting objects to figure out the one that is correct for me. How do you decide on the tomato
1: that really sort of is going to work for you this year? There are actually quite a few things that one can use to develop a strategy in terms of growing a tomato what do you want to do with it where are you going to grow it what do you want to cook what do you want to eat what will the kids eat when are you going on vacation if you're gone for the month of august you want to grow a lot of early tomatoes for example so it offers you the opportunity to have a plan and lots of folks will love that and get attached to that so you come to this event yes the jaws drop open and eyes are wide and we love that and we giggle and say dive in walk through these rows walk through these aisles And uh, and check these out. Uh, Find a tomato that you fall in love with. It could be that you fall in love with a tomato from Minnesota because you grew up there. It could be that all of a sudden, you you know, you know, your kids will eat orange cherries. Well, we probably have 10 of them, 10 varieties we can offer you or you want the most outrageous stripe because you wanna win the most interesting tomato contest in your neighborhood, whatever it happens to be, I do think it's interesting. Walk through, look at the pictures, read the descriptions, and fall in love. And you are attached. You are then attached to what you're growing, you're attached to what you're eating, and that's how we, we become connected. I love that it connects us to our food, our region, all of that stuff, and, uh, and it's really exciting.
0: I am going to remember the phrase a tomato strategy for the year. <laughs> good. <laughs> I, good. Good, good, good. Yeah. I think that's
1: exactly correct. Yes. Well, you have, look, we all grow in different spots, right? We all can't do the same thing and have or expect or enjoy the same result. So we make a strategy. Okay. Let me
0: sort of pretend that I've gone to Tomato Mania and I've. Purchased a flat or two of tomatoes because I have a tomato strategy. <laughs> <And I'm... laughs> I would
1: love it. Where are we going here? Go.
0: <laughs> and I'm going back to my house to plant them. And since I know I have the expert in front of me here, how do I transplant the tomato?
1: What do I do for success? Well, you get home, you bring that tomato in, and just for a minute, you set those tomatoes aside and you concentrate on your soil. Add organics once your soil is ready, you will ease it out of the pot gently. You'll prepare the hole where you know it's going. You might sprinkle a little bit of a good balanced organic fertilizer in there, right in the root zone. Some people add an egg or a fish head or all those other things that you can put in a hole. But for now, let's just be simple. Prepare with good compost and all that. Add a little fertilizer, place that tomato in the hole that you prepared, and then tuck it in really, really nicely, making sure that you've buried a bit of the stem. So that when you plant that tomato, you really just want the very top of that plant and a few leaves above the soil. Plant some of the stem because the stem will root. So the stem will provide more roots for you almost immediately. The plant is stronger, the root ball is deeper and cooler, and the plant gets a good start. You water it in nicely there, you soak it well, you should be on your way. Planting the stem
0: goes against all of my
1: gardening knowledge. Well, and it's, it, it does. And that's the other um, eye-popping, jaw-dropping thing that, that that most beginners hear and go, how can that possibly work? And we respond with, well, hey, just don't do it with your squash and your corn. You can only do it with tomatoes, but go for it, and you'll see a stronger, thicker, more healthy plant right from the get-go. And it's a good idea. I want to go back to something
0: you kind of glossed over Fish heads and eggshells.
1: Why did you just move on from fish heads and (laughs) eggshells? It does make you go, ooh, right? Because there are lots of, you know, just as in everything else. I mean, pick a topic, pick a hobby, pick a whatever. People do it differently. We have a good tomato maniac friend who puts Tums in the bottom of his tomato planting holes to provide more calcium for the tomatoes so that he can help avoid blossom end rot. And aspirin, the salicylic acid, is that what's in aspirin? Root de- to yeah. aid in root development. There's all sorts of lore, all sorts of things out there. We all have those things. I think if you get a good balance for fertilizer and amazing soil, you're off to a good start. I'm going to have to think about this for quite a while. <laughs> the, um,
0: the idea of putting aspirin or Tums mm-hmm. in my gardens doesn't seem like the most effective way to do things if I'm planting a lot of plants for the season.
1: Well, I tell you, the the only time I ever used the egg theory, Brian, I was, I was in Ohio on a, planting a, a large part of one of our test gardens. And I got, I got lazy and I dug all the holes, right? I dug 40 or 50 holes. And then I put an egg in every one because I have chickens. I, I, that's easy for me to do. And then I got tired and put it off till the next day. And when I came back the next day, critters had stolen most of them. So I went, ah, this is just doomed. You know, I, it, it, this is a sign. And uh, oh, well, there you are. Yeah, clearly
0: you're going to have to crack the eggs
1: in the future. <laughs> exactly. So answer that question for me. Oh, that's
0: that's fantastic. Well, okay, so there is a lot of technical knowledge that goes along with any gardening. Can be sure. And if you're sort of going to invite yourself into the world of having a tomato strategy and growing heirloom tomatoes and, and joining this community, you know, you will have to sort of jump up on your learning curve.
1: Oh, Absolutely.
0: If you're a beginner,
1: are you going to have some success? Of course. Well, look, it's a fun thing. You know, and it's not difficult. This is not something that requires a lot of study. As you hit the different phases of what you're doing, whether it's rooting something into the ground for the first time rather than planting a root ball or fertilizing or pruning or anything that comes along with gardening, and there's all that in the tomato world, right? All of those things are things that you could learn while you're growing this one plant or plants. Just address them as they happen, and you don't have to know it all going in. You learn as you go and as you grow. There's so much out there that can help you with that, and uh, it's a lovely thing, too given that this is a
0: getty podcast it makes me think about curating tomatoes in terms of picking from the 6 or 7000 down to 300 every year tomatoes and maybe we can make the association that you're curating a collection that you are sorting through all of our available choices and and bringing it forward to the local gardener
1: how do you choose Oh gosh, that's such a good question. There are many things that drive a choice, but I'm after the charm of tomatoes. I'm after the history of tomatoes. Obviously, appeal and taste and all of that. But if I can tie it up all in one, you know, in one bundle, that's what I want to choose. And you're so correct. We are creating and curating each season a collection of tomatoes for people to choose from. And that's based on tomato fashion of a sort. It can be about color. It can be about stripes. It can be about size. Um, I think of one particular tomato, Brian, that we sort of honored, if you will, as our tomato of the year a couple of years ago. And it's called Thorburn's terracotta. It's named after Mr. Thorburn, who grew it. And he introduced this tomato in 1893 and it was the cover of Livingston's or whatever seed catalogs. It was highly touted as this amazing tomato that was different. And obviously a terracotta tomato was different. It's sort of a smallish beefsteak. They chatted about it and you know promoted it and made it happen for years, but it did quickly fall out of favor because that was an era in which there were more red tomatoes being hybridized than anything. And it was kind of decided, I guess, informally or the market decided that red tomatoes were the thing. And so it fell out of favor and disappeared from the covers of seed catalogs and such. And to many who study such things, and there are several garden historians who who try to do this, they thought it was lost. Some seed was found early in the aughts, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and it was in fact found, replanted, retested, all this, right? And um, we found it and embraced that story wholeheartedly and went, Oh, my God, this is the kind of thing that we need to showcase. This is the kind of thing that we need to offer the public, the growing public. So, yes, I mean, we we find even antiquated things like this and showcase them in the same way the museum does and offer them to hopefully a whole new group of people or at least offer a whole new way of looking at this item to a whole group of people. Tomato Mania is a tomato exhibit. It is. I <laughs> got it. It is. And can I, and can I tell you, one of, my, one of my dreams is to have a showcase in the middle of the summer where we actually set up tomatoes in a gallery and tell these stories. You know, a tomato on a white plinth in a beautiful white corner with a spotlight on it. It's going to happen one of these days, but it hasn't happened well, yet. Well, wouldn't that be something?
0: I would enjoy the tomato tasting that goes along with this. Yes. I know some tomatoes have low acidity. Some tomatoes are sweet. Some tomatoes sort of hit you over the head with a tomato punch. Right. I mean, the flavors are fascinating. Can you
1: speak to that a little bit? Well, of course. I mean, after it's all said and done, we want good taste. Taste can vary in tomatoes according to the color. The, the sweetness of a yellow or a red-yellow blend, the deepness, the smokiness of a black tomato, which has, they become sensations. They're dark and, and mysterious, and boy, that taste is like nothing you've, you've ever had before. The sweetness of a cherry versus the sort of the robustness of a beefsteak. It's all there. When you sort of factor those things into taste is subjective, and we all taste things differently, all possibilities can happen. Everything is possible. And that's how we make this also, I think, in the end. We kind of make it a personal game. You know, everybody doesn't experience what we experience with that tomato in our garden. That's a special experience. That's really, really a keen thing for someone to be able to do. And again, I think it's part of the challenge and it's part of the charm and why we do it again and again and again. Scott, I feel like
0: i internalizing what you're saying because <laughs> from my own experience, you know, I enjoy the green zebra tomato. Yes. If I have green zebra in a salad, to me, it's summer and that sort of defines summer for me. Oh, that's so nice. I don't know how to describe
1: it. I mean, we know this. We know this feeling. We know that emotion. We know what comes along with that. And again, you know, a lot of the times I when we talk about tomato mania and what we do, it's not about so much a plant as it is about an experience. And I think that, too, is sort of museum-like. You know, you go and you see great art, or you see great sculpture, and it's an experience. It's not just an object there. It becomes more than that. And I think that's what kind of we aim to get get to and not we don't do that for people we sort of provide an opportunity and they do it themselves very very special thank you for that
0: scott i think that really speaks to sort of what's going on we take it with us yes Um, it becomes part of who we are absolutely scott i want to thank you for having this conversation with us today very much appreciate your knowledge and sharing what you know about tomatoes and And want to applaud you with all of your (laughs) efforts in in making this available to us. It's been terrific talking with
1: you. I feel the same way. Thank you for having me.
0: This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman, with audio production by Gideon Brower and mixing by Mike Dodge Weisskopf. Our theme music comes from The Dharma at Big Sur composed by John Adams for the opening of Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003 and is licensed with permission from Hinden Music. For new episodes of Art and Ideas, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu podcasts. And if you have a question or an idea for an upcoming episode, write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening.